very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabricas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full program, you know what to do. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. Give yourself the gift of truth. And have you ever wondered what it would be like to talk to our cosmic neighbors, to different extraterrestrial species? Tonight's special guest did, and found that what they have to say is exciting and challenging. Tonight's special guest is a veteran of this program, Dr. Angela Thompson-Smith, right now on Veritas. Dr. Angela Thompson-Smith... PhD describes her life as taking place in three parts. The first part dealt with the physical, working as a nurse, social worker, a medical researcher in the UK and the US. The second part of her life focused on the mind, when she worked at the Pear Lab at Princeton University and studied psychology at Saybrook Graduate School. And the third part of her life has focused on spirit. Dr. Smith was recently ordained as a shamanic practitioner. She is the author of a number of books, including the latest one titled Voices from the Cosmos, which she co-authored with Dr. C.B. Scott Jones. Her website can be found at mindwiseconsulting.com, which is also linked at ours. And I would like to welcome my friend, Dr. Angela Thompson-Smith, back to Veritas. Hello, Angela, and welcome back. Hi, thank you for having me on the show. Always a pleasure. And let me just tell the audience that I expected to have a, a somebody else also with you joining today, uh, Dr. C.B. Scott Jones, but unfortunately he had some, some medical issues to take care of and, and uh, he passed the torch to you. Well, you're going to carry on, I'm sure. I'll carry the torch. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I just finished the book about five minutes ago and my goodness, when I see, you know, I'm always fascinated with remote viewing. Mm-hmm. But usually you don't hear remote viewers talk about communication with extraterrestrial species. What is the premise of the book? Let's start with that, Voices from the Cosmos. Voices from the Cosmos is a bit, well, quite a bit out of the box. Um, it's not your usual application of remote viewing. Uh, but I was working for nine years with a, a businessman who was rather unconventional And from time to time, he threw me projects and said, do you think you can do this with remote viewing? And we'd uh, figure out something. 
Uh, one of the projects he threw to me was, uh, can you talk to aliens with using remote viewing? If you can um, bring in people in remote viewing, how about aliens? So it was sort of a bit off the cuff and uh, we put something together and developed a protocol, which we then went on to do for a year with uh, a lot of success. This is a Wall Street guy who commissioned you to do this, right? Right, right. Can't give you his name. Of course. Um, very, very innovative and forward-thinking gentleman. Well, as of now, I know that uh, he has sold his business and, and retired. Uh, what has... What was his impression of the end result of all of this, by the way? After we'd, we'd been doing this for about a year, um, he got a little bit spooked. Um, I think he realized he was treading on some very controversial ground and uh, so decided, uh, let's get back to business remote viewing. And consequently, the, the files just stayed in my computer for about seven years. And we didn't do anything with them. I remember during our last conversation, you were kind of uh, keeping this close to your chest because I try to pry some information and I guess you weren't ready back then. Why? Right, right. Yeah, I was sort of hinting at what might be. And it wasn't until my client retired and uh, he actually, I believe, shredded all of his documents. Uh, but I kept mine and they were mine. I, I did the work. So. Um, last year decided it was time to do something with them. What were or are your goals with all this information? I think the goals are already being met. Uh, the feedback I've had from the book, from people who specifically read the, the alien interviews is, wow, this confirms a lot of what I've already suspected. Uh, you've confirmed a lot of things that happened to me personally and similar comments. You know, Angel, if history, and I don't mean to start the interview by being cynical or pessimistic because that's not my intent, but if history is an indicator of what future contact would be, I have to tell you, and I don't mean to, again, to be pessimistic, if kings and queens use their funds to send explorers to the quote-unquote new world, we all know what happened to the existing cultures. We didn't really come in peace so should the purpose of our new journey be to explore? But I just don't see how human beings with our warlike mentalities can change that. Do you think we have matured and evolved as a species in, in order to establish communication with an extraterrestrial culture? I don't think we've developed in general. Uh, we're still, as a species, very warlike and very ter territorial. Um, whether... The, the species that are coming here are um, akin to us sending out uh, explorers to the New World. They told us in the interviews that they had been here forever visiting, and um, they were here before us, they would be here after us, and um, it was nothing out of the ordinary. So they're really not here to save us or heal us or to invade us. They're really, uh, a lot of them, just co-visitors to this planet. Same thing would happen if we, in the future, had a, a way to, to explore tourism in another planet. We would just simply be observing, being neutral, I guess. But who were Drs. Alan Tuff, 
I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, Alan Tuff and Scarlett Wang. And can you share with us the list of potential questions that humans should be asking of our neighbors and some things that our neighbors might be, like to know about us? This was a website that caught my interest uh, when I was writing up the um, the introduction for the for the book. And uh, uh, Alan Tuff has since passed away. And I tried to contact his wife and uh, Scarlett Wang, but uh, didn't get a response from them. So I think that branch of inquiry has been is no longer uh, in play. But what they did was Alan. Uh, they decided that they would put together a committee of 100 scientists uh, from all professions and ask them, put together a list of potential questions that might be asked of ETs visiting here uh, to ascertain if they, were, if they were real, if they were for real. I don't know the specific questions that they asked. They only alluded to them in their website. Um, but they were basically, can you tell us, you know, in general where you're from? Can you give us some indication of or any proof of who you are, DNA evidence, etc.? Um, it was just a, the website's still up there, and um, it's in the book. And um, it was just a fascinating glimpse of what other people were doing to try and look at the the um, the alien, the enigma. I like what they said. Quote that the information given and received should not be used for destructive or harmful purposes, but to increase our understanding of the universe, to build a better world for future generations, and to enhance our sense of meaning and purpose. Unquote. Very, very powerful statement there. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wanted to put it into the book, to show that there are people out there questioning the current dogma that, you know, none of this is real. And, uh, there, there are other people out there searching. And before we begin with the communication, you added that you actually discussed President Obama and the response from his administration when the question about acknowledging an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race. The response from the White House came on November 7th, 2011. What was the response? Do you know, I'm not, I don't actually remember that part. Was that in the book? That was in the book probably written by the, the, the one of Scott, Scott yeah. Jones, correct. And I include that here because I remember back in 2008, I submitted a, a similar request, granted, not to the White House. It was to my, my congressman. And I received almost a boiler template looking the same. You know, what they say mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, we don't have any evidence of extraterrestrial life, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't mean that we're not looking. And they cite SETI, they cite I NASA and the rest. Do you think those entities like NASA and SETI are simply window dressing to give us an illusion of exploration? I'm sure like many of the agencies, they're under uh, strict policies of what they can and cannot reveal. And uh, I'm sure there's a lot more going on than, well, I do believe there's a lot more going on than the public knows. And, uh, but it's all kept very quiet. And people like yourself are very good about putting out any new information that comes along. Um, Scott has also revealed some of the the historic revelations (laughs) in um, some of the uh, disclosure in, in the book. 
and how we can set up a, a dialogue for disclosure in the future. Um, yes, I, I believe that NASA and other organizations, and they, they have come out with tempting little bits from time to time, but nothing uh, substantial. Or if it's substantial, we're not going to be privy about it because I think that if, if these entities have evolved to the point of coming here mm-hmm. and we haven't been able to go over there, it means so many things. First of all, they are a prospective enemy in the eyes of the military. And I'm not talking about myself. I don't see them that way. Right. I'm neutral. I don't say that they're all good. I don't say that they're all bad. Everybody has their own intention and, 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 you know, the way they see the planet, they come here for resources, just like we would go to another planet and we wouldn't think twice if we needed a resource in order to survive, we would take it. So the same thing could be happening out there. But the, the military, the political system sees this as a detrimental aspect of, of our future. If number one, free energy, cure for all disease, questioning our established religions, so many things acting against them that I I don't see a future government leader coming out with this information unless it was to deceive us. And, you know, as you know, Scott Jones, he's good friends with our friend Carol, Carol, Dr. Mm-hmm. Carol Rosson, yeah. who allegedly from Dr. Werner von Braun told her the final card would be the alien invasion and don't believe it for a minute. What's your stand on that, by the way? Um, well, we've seen inklings of that already. Um, I think there are two pathways going on. For example, the Vatican recently came out um, recently and said, yes, the, the, the ET story is true and there are space brothers and uh, etc. Um, NASA has been putting out teasers um, you know, the government, the U.S. government really is, is closed mouth on the issue. But then on the other hand, you you do hear stories of, you know, well, you know, we should be putting weapons up in space with, you know, the Star Wars ideology. Um, I don't think we need weapons in space. And what the ETs have told us is we will defend ourselves. Um, they are not aggressive. I mean... They come here for our resources and well for their shared resources too. Um, but if you know if they were attacked, I'm sure that they would respond. And, and you mentioned you yeah, mentioned. I'm sorry. Finish your statement. Oh, that's just what they and that's what they've told us. Right, right. On and the book, several parts of the book. You mentioned you and Scott mentioned Zachariah Sitchin in April 2000. Zachariah Sitchin, a Hebrew scholar and researcher of ancient civilizations, a biblical archaeologist, and a descendant of Abraham, met with Monsignor Balducci during an international conference held in Bellaria, Italy. Sitchin reported on his website that during their meeting, they arrived at three common conclusions. Extraterrestrials can and do exist on other planets. They can be more advanced than us, and materially, man could have been fashioned from a pre-existing sentient being. Monsignor Balducci died in September 2008, and Sitchin died in October 2010. And for anybody, anyone interested, I was very fortunate to have conducted Sitchin's last interview that discusses all of this. Why is Sitchin so important to the whole equation? I see him be mentioned throughout the book. Right. Sitchin was a scholar, as you know. Um, he looked at the uh, Sumerian 
uh, manuscripts and, and uh, deduced from that a lot of the very, very, very early history of uh, humans and uh, the possibility that we came, we were developed as a species. Um, the alien interviews say that we were not developed as a slave race, but basically as their children. Um, Zechariah Titchin got a lot of it right when we questioned uh, some of the Anunnaki about Titchin. They said, yeah, he got most of it right, but there were some things that he didn't get right because the when the um, Sumerians wrote it up, they got some things wrong. So, you know, there, as you know, with, uh, with documentation over the centuries, it can get slightly uh, altered. And you, so, left, you left the Anunnaki talks or dialogue until the very end. So you kept me on the edge of my seat waiting for that. A reason for that. <laughs> I bet you you had a reason to leave it until the end. And let's try to leave this till the end because it, okay. it becomes very apparent to me as to why. But what is the Exobiology Project? The Exobiology Project was basically what um, my client tasked me with. The, initially, it was to just talk with five of the alien species. And uh, you know, the, the tall greys, the, the small greys, the, um, the reptilians, etc., the hybrids, and um, the uh, let's see, the tall, yeah, the tall whites. And um, that was such a success. We got such a, a great, resp unexpected response to the questions that we put together that um, we then proceeded on. And that, over the year, that became the. Uh, the Exobiology Project. Now, I wanted to give a foundation of, of the book and how you came to, to converge with all this information and, and C.B. Scott Jones with you. But I know a lot of our listeners are so excited about this interview because of what we're about to discuss. Let's get to the meat of things. The Exobiology Interviews. And by the way, Exobiology means the scientific field that investigates the potential for life on other planets. What kind of protocol did you use for these interviews and what did you focus on? Of course, there is no protocol. There is no interview process to interview aliens that we, we are aware of um, in the public. So what I had to do was think about this and figured out if we were to go into the Amazon or some of some other undeveloped area and met a group of people who'd had some limited interaction with, um, with people, you know, with modern society had a little bit of language, um, what kinds of questions would be asked of them to find out about who they were, how they lived, etc., what they thought, and their philosophies. And I found a, an anthropological survey that was used for such a purpose. And I adapted that. Now, that was not the best thing because it's designed for humans, but it worked pretty well. And... Um, we did get some odd responses, like, why are you asking that question? That's a human question. Um, but um, it worked pretty well, and we adapted it over the year um, from just the straight interview process. So it sounds, the, the beginning interviews sound a bit much the same because we were asking very much the same questions of each race. But then we gradually started asking them to dialogue with each other, each race, the races to dialogue together, and then asking questions about the other races and then getting to a point where we're asking specific questions of the races 
and then actually doing some um, out-of-body type uh, site visits to the, the home locations of the, the group that we were, we were interviewing. I will discuss all of this, but I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, this all began on February the 25th, 1990. You decided to request a mental interface with the quote-unquote visitors with several aims in mind, three of them. One, to exchange information. Two, to understand goals. And three, to achieve mutual cooperation. So during your open interface, you asked if, you know, this first being if he wanted to sit and he replied that sitting and lying down were human actions. He asked you what we had not adapted over the centuries to gravity and still had to counter it for, we have to counter our force by sitting. What did he say about that and what were the ground rules for your conversation? The ground rules basically was that we would each do as was comfortable for us. Um, so if it meant me in the interview process, uh, which was done on, a, of course, a, um, a, a mental level. Uh, if sitting was natural for me and standing was natural for them, that's what we would do without any judgment. We would not judge each other's actions. Um, also, um, the first meeting was, um, you know, touching, shaking each other's hands, and I was repelled by the, the hand that um, the you know, the alien put out. And he said, well, I'm also repulsed by your hand. So we had to agree <laughs> that yeah. we would be, you know, we would accept each other without judgment. What about the gravity part when he said that you haven't conquered, that's judgment, that you haven't yeah, conquered gravity. Yeah. What do you say about that? That? Was, just a, that was just a fact, I think. Um, and it was a question, why haven't you figured out yet how to counteract gravity and or to manage gravity? And, um, why do you have to keep sitting and standing all the time? And uh, it was just the way, way we are. We haven't got there yet. How did you communicate? Verbal, telepathic, pictures? This was more, it was a telepathic process with pictures. Um, I was doing a meditation and uh, in that meditation, doing a visionary experience. And uh, I, I could see and hear and talk, but not, I wasn't talking out loud in, um, in that particular process. Now, who was the wise one, the one who cut the conversation? And it wasn't until 26 years later, and I'll ask you in a minute why the gap of time, but who was the wise one? Well, the wise one was the initial, um, I, I don't like to use the word alien because it means strange. Um, and I think we've been interacting with these these guys for a long, long, long time. Um, but he was basically one of the races that interface with humans, and I call them interfaces rather than abductions or visionary experiences. Um, so he, I called him the wise one because he appeared that way. He had a lot of knowledge, and I call it him a he because that's how he appeared. Um, had a lot of knowledge, a lot of understanding. And a lot of questions about, for example, how do we as humans think about time? Because our concept of time, their concept of time, is very different. Well, who are the aliens really, Angela? Because if most of these extraterrestrial species have been here before we came along, who are the aliens then? We probably us. Right. Uh-huh. So yeah. how, how did our concept of time compare to theirs? 
Um, in my naivety at that time, I tried to explain, you know, the, the interval between a tick and a talk on the clock, that was time. And of course, that was not acceptable because we were just measuring sound. And uh, then I tried to introduce the concept of, you know, putting a stick in the ground with the sun passing, and that was the passage of time. And again, I was told, no, no, that's just the passing of the sun and shadow of the sun, that's not time. Um, our concept of time is very linear, whereas theirs is very holistic. Very, um, I'm sorry, repeat that last word? Oh, holistic. Holistic. Okay. Non-linear. Yeah, yeah. So the wise one decided to close the interface, meaning the communication, and the next time turned out to be 26 years later. Why so long? Um, primarily because uh, I have a life. <laughs> um, there were so many other things taking my time, and uh, I did write up a book uh, around that time in 2001 called Diary of an Abduction, uh, which I put a lot of information in that had occurred in the meantime. So even though I hadn't done a, an interview process um, in those interviewing, year, interviewing years, I did put a lot into the book, which is now out of print, but you can still get copies on Amazon, uh, Diary of an Abduction. Um, I don't have any copies now, unfortunately. Um, you are an abductee? I don't know. <laughs> I've had lots of experiences that suggest that, but I've never been willing to come out and say yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the next time was 20, January 2006. 2006. Uh -huh. You communicated was, with the large uh -huh. grays. Is their societal structure more like insects, a hive mind, since they always act together? Right. They, they really had to converse as a group to uh, give me any answers. There was no independence. Now summarize your communication with the large grays. And there's there's a big difference between we think of the large grays and we think of the small grays as being one. Perhaps they work with each other, but they're they're separate, aren't they? Yeah, the large grays seem to have a lot more autonomy and a lot more independent thought. And um, perhaps a great deal more uh, range of movement to a range of um, location. They can go places that perhaps uh, more gray crowned. Um, they are still very much involved in what we talk of as the abduction process and um, very much in the craft. And when people talk about being in the craft, they, the tall grays and the small grays are there. When you asked him how the earth could be included in the confederation, you were told we would be invited. When you asked when you received when you asked that you received no response. Why? Um, I think because not all of the races are part of the confederation. Those that are tended to say, um, "Well, you have to abide by the rules," but then they couldn't really give us the rules. Um, and then the ones that weren't said, "Well, it doesn't matter because we abide by the rules anyway." Um, so it seemed to be a matter of waiting to be invited when humans were ready and when they were willing to abide by the rules of the confederation. But it seems you can survive as a race and be quite active and independent without being part of the confederation. So that's remained a mystery for me. And I've always thought that abductions are 
an infringement on free will. Did you ask that question? I did. And interestingly enough, what came back was that the the small greys at least felt that the abductions were beneficial to humans, which shook me. Um, and I, I reiterated to them, you know, well, humans don't think of it that way. They think of it as invasive and um, negative and against our free will. And um, they said, well, no, because out of the abductions come the hybrids and the hybrids are sent out all over the universe as ambassadors. And um, so in the eyes of the greys, the abductions actually are beneficial. But why don't they, if they're doing all of this, you know, and what about implants? Human consider implants to be imposing on free will and an autonomy. What do you say about implants? But the reason why I ask you is, if they're doing all of this, why can't we be informed as to what the real purpose is? I've always said that. <laughs> well, with the implants, I asked, can humans um, somehow get rid of the implants? And the answer was yes. You just have to, you know, um, do some kind of process and um, or you know, get rid of them in your mind, or I'm not quite sure what they meant by that, but they said, we'll put them back in again. So it was, yes, of course you can get rid of them. Of course you can say, don't abduct me. Um, don't do this, don't do that. But um, And we won't for a while, but then we'll be back. So that was the general message. I can only think of one word, cattle. I mean, we implant, we chipped, uh, or we brand a cattle, and, mm -hmm. you know, even if they, they might not want it, uh, it's our cattle. Are we their cattle? Is this, is this a massive plantation here, planet Earth? Well, not everybody um, gets to be taken. Uh, so I think it's a selective process. I don't know how people are selected because it seems to be across all, all generations, all races, all genders. Um, but... Uh, you know, it, not everybody goes through that process. So I wouldn't think of it as us being their cattle, just that there are perhaps selected pedigrees, put it that way, that they, they tend, particularly in families, that they, they tend to select. Who carries out the abductions, or as they call it, collections? And how many races are involved, and, and for what purpose are these abductions? For hybridization only? Um, the, the main process seems to be hybridization. The, the greys tend to be the main species doing the, the abducting, particularly the small greys. The hybrids, the, um, the Nordics tend to be involved too. They're there on the ships and they say they don't go and collect people, but they work with humans once they're on board the ship. Um, there are also some other races, such as um, some light beings that are along with the greys that tend to act as comforters. A lot of people have spoken about angelic beings being alongside them in the, in the process. So we talked to them too, and they said, yeah, we're there, and we, we do what we can to assist humans and um, comfort them. So, How, yeah. how do they travel? The, the large greys? They travel by craft, by ship. And um, when I talked to the um, reptilians, which they didn't want to talk, first of all, but I, I talked to them, I persisted. 
And they said they were the ones that piloted the craft. They didn't say that they drove the craft. Um, they piloted the craft. And my guess is that they are, they know a lot of the star maps, the routes, etc. That Because um, why on earth, why would they be, why on earth? I, I found that, and, and I want to go step by step. I want to, um, my mind works that way. I like to go in silos because I want to discuss the, the hooded reptilian Mm -hmm. I found that very interesting because they're, they seem to be so short and even though they say they're emotionless, they seem to be grumpy. And to me, they seem like uh, drivers or chauffeurs of, of these uh, other beings, almost as if that's their, their purpose. But we'll discuss the reptilians in a moment. Mm -hmm. Where do the large grades come from? Different planet or dimension? That wasn't clear. Um, when I talked to some of the other races, they did give me some some numbers of the, I suppose, the coordinates, the, the celestial coordinates, but we have nothing to compare them to. I did go to some of the NASA star maps and try to plug in some of these numbers, but I couldn't do it. Um, it would take somebody perhaps with a um, an astronomy background to uh, to do that. I uh, know somebody here at the observatory at the University of Arizona. By the way, it's called Veritas, believe it or not. Oh, and I okay. wonder if I could give him those coordinates, if he can take me and, and find uh, where that could possibly be located. But what is the purpose in coming here for the large grace? Uh, they come here to, um, to collect humans. Um, that seems to be their main process, but also to, to collect um, resources such as minerals water etc and um, because this is this is only one one port of call being that the earth is just a speck of dust or a grain of sand and if you look at the big picture yeah what is I, I guess we're in the boondocks in the corner in the edge of the galaxy why come here why it's so important to come here from what I've gathered talking to them and doing the interviews was that they they greatly respect some of our qualities, such as our humor, our um, independence and will, which they don't have. So there are many qualities that humans have that the other races don't have. And um, this is why I think that they, they value, I know it sounds kind of ironic, but they value us for the hybridization process. And yeah, they, they said, when I asked about uh, how many other races are there, they said there are as many races as there are stars in the sky. Mm -hmm. And what is the purpose of the hybridization program? If, if I didn't know any better, I would suspect they're adapting their race in order, and this sounds negative, I know, but in order to, to take over the planet because by having you know, a mixture of our DNA, perhaps with theirs and, and the Nordics, they're, they're able to, to change things around. And is there a takeover in, in the plants? That didn't come through in the interviews. Um, it, their main purpose that came through was um, sending out the, the hybrids as ambassadors out into the cosmos. There, there was never any indication from any of the races that they were here to take us over. And I think if that was so, they would have done so before. What about the indigo children? Is somebody producing the indigo children? And if so, for what purpose? When I asked about that, they said that 
I said, are the indigo children part of the hybridization process? And they said, well, we prefer to work with them because they are easier to work with because they have some intuitive abilities. But we did not produce the, the indigo children. And almost every race answered the same, the same way. Mm-hmm. That they're just, uh, they've always been humans. They just have different qualities. Is that what they told you? Right. Um, every generation has indigo children. And uh, are there different different races working together? And if so, what is their goal by working to get together? The majority of the races we talked to were independent. The, the races, the greys, the Nordics, and the... Um, some of the reptilians, some of the angelics um, work together. Um, they will talk to each other. In fact, I, I did some dialogues. I got them to talk to each other in the dialogue process, um, which was fascinating to me because I learned a lot from it. But they don't tend to um, work together as we think of working together as being in a cooperative uh, process uh, You know, they don't form corporations, they don't form um, companies or large groups. They all tend to have their own agendas and their own um, MOs. Especially because they think like like insects, like a hive. So this Gray kept saying to you, humans are limited. To me, Angela, that sounds very arrogant when you ask them if... There is life after death. He answered again, humans are limited. Did you get an answer to that question? There wasn't only the greys that told us that. Um, It seems to be a common thread um, throughout the races that humans are limited. And I thought a lot about it because at first I thought, how arrogant and how demeaning to humans (laughs) to say that. But then... um, we are limited to some extent. We, are, we have great potential, and we have not really gained that potential yet. Uh, we, you know, there's so much more for us as humans to do to travel the universe. Um, a lot of the races are way, way, way ahead of us, thousands of years ahead of us. So they naturally see us as limited. And I don't think it's limited in the negative sense is just that we have not yet achieved our potential but you see the mere fact that you conducted this this project the book and the fact that you and i are discussing some this here should tell them that we have inquisitive minds we want to know who we are where we come from who the creator is do they admire that quality of us that we're asking those questions and did they say anything as to why we really don't get the answers? Is there, is there somebody or a group, and we'll get to the end with the Anunnaki, I guess, to know why it is that we are kept in the dark like mushrooms? I think it's partly our fault and partly um, circumstantial. Um, the circumstantial is that, um, you know, even though they've been visiting here, we've really not taken them seriously. Um, on the other hand, the way that the communication takes place is telepathic, which is often a dirty word in science. Um, you start talking about telepathy and it's all pseudoscience. Um, but everybody has that ability and it's been denied and ridiculed for so many 
well, over a century and a half now that um, anybody trying to do, to communicate that way and to talk about it gets ridiculed, perhaps even um, hospitalized. Um, and the, but the, when in the interviews, the races basically said, yeah, we, we love, we, you know, we, we really welcome communication in this way. And we are very willing to talk to people and to share information, but just very, very few people, perhaps one to five percent of the human race, that contacts us and uh, communicates. But they really welcome it. Now, how are people communicating with them? Is it the same fashion as you were, or are there different modalities to conduct uh, communication? I've come across a couple of modalities. Um, I think the way I was doing it was sort of unique. Um, there was another, I don't recall the name of the book right now, but um, in the process of a therapeutic hypnotic course, a hypnotherapist and patient started um, a dialogue. Um, I'm not sure how it came about, but with a, with a race and got some really fascinating information. So it was done with the patient in the hypnotic state and the therapist asking questions. Um, and uh, But the way I did it, which was direct, I was not in trance state, I am not a channeler. Um, my client would give me a set of questions. So these were his questions with some of my clarif clarification questions thrown in. And I would type them up into my computer and then sit there and say, okay, anybody want to talk to me? And as the information came in, I typed it into the questions. So... It was not a, a trance process at all. I know there have been lots of people over the, the last couple of decades um, that have done, that have channeled um, the races. But um, so that's a, maybe a third method. One question that uh, you asked pretty much all the races was the question of life after death. What did the toll grays say about life after death? The, the grays basically said when, when they failed, you know, when they didn't work anymore, they just stopped. Um, the hybrids, the, um, the Nordics had a very interesting process where they kind of translated into a new body. Um, a lot of the races said, well, you know, again, we just stop or we don't stop. We just keep going. So there, it was varied. I would like, at some point, I want to make up a, a chart of the various responses comparing the races, because each of the races has said something quite unique. That would be interesting to see it visually. Yeah, yeah. Because That's on my on my to do list. <laughs> good, because consciousness. You know, I want to know if if when a gray dies, does the consciousness goes, does it go somewhere else? They didn't indicate that. Um, I don't think so. I think it's um, their concept of death is just we stop. Or we is it? Or is it because they have such a hive mind, they're all thinking the same thing, so that when somebody dies, it's the same information that keeps being recycled because they all think like one. Right. Right. Yeah. Now, I, now, how do they perceive us? Do they see us as expendable, just like the conquistadors saw the native people of the New World? Depends on the race. Um, some of the races are very fascinated by humans, and um, others were here just as, um, you know, 
uh, resource. So I don't think that we're, I mean, it's the same as us perhaps traveling into the jungle and going, oh, look, there's a tapir or there's an orangutan. Um, I think we're of interest to some of the other races to come and visit here, but we're here doing our thing, they're doing their thing, and um, there really isn't a great deal of communication or common communication. Are we in danger of decimation sometime in the future? What came out as a general consensus was the human race waxes and wanes. Sometimes it declines, sometimes it increases, uh, but humans are not in danger of, uh, of total decimation. And how do they multiply and, and do they have different genders? And I'm, I'm, I'm going species by species. I'm talking about the, the tall grays now. Tall grays don't seem to generate that way. Um, they don't seem to have, even though they may have outward characteristics, um, masculine traits or feminine that we would classify as feminine or masculine, they didn't seem to have um, a way to procreate. There, there was no indication. But again, I was asking a very set series of questions. So it wasn't apparent, you know, that they, you know, they didn't volunteer a lot of information. Did I get the perception right that most of the species that you interv interviewed were male or at least hermaphrodites or asexual? Um asexual, I would say, because it was very difficult for me to decide if I was talking to a male or female, and I didn't use that judgment. I just asked the questions, recorded. It was as if I was interviewing um, a person, um, asking the questions and writing the responses. Mm -hmm. So I really didn't judge uh, what gender they were or if they, even if they had a gender. When you were interviewing this one, this particular gray, were you in essence interviewing all the grays? Absolutely, with the grays, the talls, and the small, the short grays that very much hive mind. So you're talking to one, you're talking to them all. Why were they not part of the Confederation? Why were they not invited to join? Um, I think because they're a very independent race, they have their own agendas, and uh, I think it's it's a decision that each race makes. They may get an invitation, but it's up to the race to accept. And what about this confederation? And by the way, I have lots of questions. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just shooting left and right with everything I've got because I really want to leverage this time with you today. Right. This confederation, I, I, I sense some trepidation from most of the species when you asked him about it. What is this confederation? Is, this, is it the equivalent of our United Nations off the galaxy? Again, I'm not sure. They gave us inklings of what the confederation was, which was a group that set rules, that enforced rules, um, that offered some protections. But there was not just one confederation, but many confederations throughout the different galaxies. And um, just imagine, you know, the immensity of the space out there. We are just, as you've said, a tiny, tiny, tiny bit. Um, so the I don't think it's like a UN. I think it's more like a, a controlling governing body, more like um, the AMA, <laughs> so to speak, um, that sets rules and regulations and uh, 
enforces them and expects people that have joined to follow the rules. But I found it interesting that even though some species do not belong to the Confederation, they still have to abide by the Confederation's rules. So if you don't belong to the, can we call it, organization, why do you have to follow the rules? I think because they have to um, cooperate and interact with races that do that do belong to the Confederation. So to be accepted and to work alongside them, they have to follow similar rules. That's my, my just my guess. Sure. Who designed us? And he said, natural beginning. What does that mean? That was from the greys? Yes, from the tall grey. I think that was a generic term, um, just from... I don't think the greys know how humans developed. And just, the, you know, a, a natural development of humans over time. So, I, again, I think that was just something they threw out. And you have to remember, too, what I'm receiving from them, them is filtered through a human consciousness, me, mm -hmm. to come out as speech, you know, to come out as words. So that may or may not be what they, they their interpretation. How do they record their history? Many of them don't. Many of them say they don't have written histories, that it's passed, the information's passed down from mind to mind, and particularly the group mind, they hold a group storage of their history. But again, with many of them, it doesn't go back that far. Well, that's, that's, that used to be the case with us. I mean, yes, we used to put some things in stone, but it was the oral tradition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a right. lot of it was uh, due to, uh, uh, what's the word I want to, uh, initiation. Even today, if you look at the Dogon tribe, a lot of the information is passed by initiation because they're very careful as to who they pass their knowledge to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And with the, the Native American oral tradition too. Right. Uh, it's passed down um, generation to generation, but just through select people, select individuals. What were some of the similarities with the Toll Grace and us and some of the differences? There were not many similarities. Um, there was the, the ability to communicate telepathically, which was fortunate for me, because that's one of the skills I have. Um, and uh, even though I think many people have that ability, perhaps because I've practiced some, I have a little more. Um, very, very little. There was, um, didn't seem to be a great deal of compassion or concern or what I think of as right brain thinking. Um, we have a lot of right brain thinking, and I tend to use that in a simplistic sense, um, you know, with compassion and hope and love and emotions, etc. Their society tends to be, even the, the tall grades, tend to be um, very factual and um, working very much in the moment and not, not able to be independent, make independent decisions. Well, that was a good thing, and we'll discuss that throughout the, the interview, the fact that a lot of them live in the moment, and they see our always wondering what's going to happen in the future and thinking about the past and not enjoying the present. I thought that was a very common denominator between all of them, that they see us as a detriment 
towards us that if you want to enjoy life more, we need to start living the present as opposed to always wondering and worrying about the future and the past. Quite a few of the species of the different races said that, you know, live in the moment, we live for now. And I, I, when they were describing it, I, I mentioned in my confirmatory questions was, well, that sounds very, very Buddhist. Very, very Zen. Zen. Yeah. Very Zen-like. And they didn't understand. They said, what is Buddhism? What is Zen? We are not Zen. Um, but it did sound very, uh, very much like the, the Buddhist philosophy of live for now, live in the moment. Now, when I use the word born, I don't know if this is how... I'm just trying to say when, when a tall grace manifested into being, are they, let me use the word born, are they born knowing or do they have the same learning process and programming we have to go through? I think they have, my guess is they have immediate access and can tap into the group hive mind. So there really is no, no learning curve. Mm-hmm. What is the summary of your interaction with the large greys before we jump into another species? Um, they gave me a new insight into the hybridization process. Uh, it was surprising. They were a surprising race and um, unique because and you, unique compared to some of the other races that we talked to later that were a little bit more autonomous. Now let's before we take our break. I want to discuss the 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 talk with the Nordics, and throughout the interview, we're going to be discussing so many species. But let's proceed with your talk with the Nordics. How do they cooperate? Are they part of a confederation? Um, I'm having to think. I think they do. I think they are part of the confederation. I'd have to go back and check my list. They are. They are. Yeah, we had so many of them, um, and. Um, they seem to be a lot more autonomous. In fact, they talked about themselves as also the whites. And I came across uh, the work of Charles Hall recently. I don't know if you know his writings, millennial um, writings, about uh, when he was stationed out at... Uh, oh, did you say Charles Hall? Charles Hall. Oh, the tall whites. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Okay, yeah. And um, so... They sounded very similar to the, the Nordics that I interviewed and um, that insisted that their real name is the Whites. And I, I was, when I put the interviews onto Don Ware's list, which was the first way that I got them out into the public, I just called them the Nordics. I didn't call them the Whites for political reasons. Um, I thought it might be a little bit in, politically incorrect you know, to just refer to them as the yeah, whites. Yeah, right. Um, and, uh, and nobody questioned that. But um, I think the Nordics and the whites are actually the same race. Hey, by the way, Charles Hall, he's the one who worked on Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada in 1967 uh, with, with the extraterrestrial race called the Tall Whites. Mm-hmm. And so that people know who, I get this question all the time, Angela. People email me asking me, Mel, why is it that... Uh, Black people are not abducted or, you know, Asian people are not abducted. And that is absolutely not true. No, they are. Right, I, they are. Yeah, in my experience, I've talked to people, both uh, black, Asian, uh, Filipino, um, you know, that have been abducted. To the aliens, we're all equal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're just, we're human. Right, right. exactly. Yeah. 
Now, the Nordics, once again, uh, where do they come from? The Nordics are, they're, I'm going to call, I'm going to say the word ubiquitous because I like that word. It means they're everywhere. They're able to bilocate. When we asked whether they are, you know, asked if they die, they said, no, we just send on a, um, a thought form ahead of us and um, it translates into a body when we get there. Now, that was very, very interesting to me. Yeah. Because when we think of uh, human beings, you know, we, I've talked to so many people who say that there's no life after death. I mean, that, that, that there's no death, that we essentially go from one vehicle to another. That seems to be more or less what the whites are doing. They're in point A and they're getting ready to go to point B and they, they're non-physical when they travel, but they have a code that with whatever energy around there is, they manifest this new body, which is exactly the same body they left behind, or they create a copy. So in other words, they occupy more than one body at the same time? Not that I gathered. No, I think that they, they bilocated into the new body, mm. so that it was, it was just one. And the question is, how do they materialize the body at their destination? They didn't go into that. Um, as I was doing the interviews, of course, I was following the the interview script that we've developed. So there wasn't a great deal of leeway to go into anything any more elaborate. What I'd love to do in the future is to do another level of interviews and with more races. We were going to interview more races um, and uh, you know, ask some of those questions if they would reveal them, reveal the information to us. I thought that just came to mind. We lost a, you lost a good friend of yours, Ingo Swan. Right. Did Ingo have any input in any of, of this project? Did he have any reactions to, to this as you two were good friends? He didn't um, because it, I didn't really discuss it with him. I did read his book, Penetration, where he'd had some encounters, mm -hmm. um, interesting encounters with um, on-earth ETs. But we didn't really get to discuss. When I went out to visit with him in Manhattan, he'd usually pull out all of the non-classified remote viewing work and uh, his philosophies and ideas. And you know, so there was a lot more to talk about. Now, many abductees have reported seeing Nordics or tall whites with, with greys on the craft. And, you know, one may say, oh, so does that mean that the greys are subservient to the whites? What is... What is their role with each other? They seem to have their own roles, and I never, I haven't really figured out what the, the Nordic role on, the, on board is, except that they're very interested in, us, in the personality aspect, the, the right brain aspect of uh, people, rather than the, the greys seem more interested in the physiological stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm not really too sure. Now, that's another question. The yeah. greys are interested in physical aspects of humans. What are the Nordics interested on? Well, again, I think it's the, the right brain stuff, all the, you know, our curiosity. They're the ones um, who tend to appear in disguises or appear in scenarios, testing um, people's reactions. Um, you know, people will go in the abduction process, the collection process, they'll go and they'll be shown these amazing catastrophic doomsday scenarios for the movies and uh, their reactions are as 
access. But, but they're interested in our intellect and, and personality, aren't they? I think so, yeah. More than the physiological. Right. And the grace and the Nordics, is, is one species, once again, subservient to the other again, or do you think that they just work in cooperation? Because if I remember correctly, the Nordics cannot do certain things, like they, they cannot come down here to abduct us or to collect us, as they call it, and they let the grays do that, mm-hmm. especially, especially at night. Right. I, I think that there's an, an independence yet cooperative effort taking place. So the, the greys will bring the bring people up to the, the craft or the location where they, they need to carry out their work. And uh, the Nordics then are, you know, people are then available to the, uh, to the Nordics. And when both the greys and the Nordics say that abductions are beneficial to humans in the right. long run, what exactly do they mean? The... This is more something that the greys say, um, that abductions or collections are beneficial because they say that we as a species now, as humans, are going out as as hybrids, as grey, human, Nordic hybrids, going out all over the universe. So basically human characteristics are being spread. This is their take, not mine. Um, being spread throughout the universe. So this is something that's akin to us sending out, you know, ships with explorers or going out into space to explore. They're doing, they've been doing it for a long time. And they don't call them hybrids, they call them the new. Right. So because it contains, you know, aspects of uh, human, gray, and Nordic, what is the purpose then? Is just being ambassadors? Ambassadors, they're going out to new locations. Um, and from what I gathered, they vary the amounts of each race in hybrids. So there may be some hybrids that are more human, some that are more gray, and some that are more Nordic. Are they, see- you know, I, I get these questions popping in my head, for example, and in the end, we'll discuss the Anunnaki. I think that we are hybrids of something. Perhaps they. Whoever came here altered the DNA of an existing species, maybe the, the Homo erectus, and created Homo sapiens, Homo sapiens sapiens. Are, we, are they creating these hybrids to maybe seed new worlds with new species? That wasn't explicit in what they were saying. They were basically saying ambassadors going out into, into the cosmos. Um, you have to remember that each of the questions was fairly short and didn't get into a lot of detail. Um, they didn't talk really about the hybrid seeding new lands. Um, again, there are many, many questions that I would love to ask them, but um, we didn't in the limited opportunity we had. And going back to the way they travel, non-materially, does that mean teleportation? I think if they have hybrid, if they have Nordic hybrid uh, predominant, then they can bilocate. I'm talking about the Nordics per se. Oh, the Nordics can, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So if they travel non-materially, how is it that they appear physical once they reach their destination? How is the new body formed? Did they explain that to you? They didn't. They didn't. They just said that there was a new body. Um, they had a template, is what they called it. 
of the body that they they formulated and became physical again. Mm -hmm. When will the Earth be ready to join the Confederation? That's the multi-million dollar question. <laughs> Why the secrecy? They keep, you know, there's a lot of trepidation, a lot of no answer or, you know, enigmatic answers. Why? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Might have been with the questioning. Um, you have to remember that the questions were, were developed by a, a Wall Street uh, financier mm -hmm. who was is a fairly um, spiritual guy. Um, a lot of very, you know, intriguing questions. But again, coming from a very male-oriented, um, business-oriented background. So the questions that were asked were um, really not designed to answer all questions. And some of the, the way some of the questions were formed were perhaps taken by some of the races as being a bit invasive. Mm. And I, what do you mean? What's our confederation? Why do you want to know? <laughs> that kind of attitude. Who belongs to the confederation and, and what is its purpose? I would say that maybe 25% of the races that we, we talk to belong to the confederation. And again, I, I need to sit down and put, make, put together an Excel or similar um, chart of many of the characteristics and who's in the confederation, who's not, etc. And it um, seems that they uh, don't believe, and this is the, the total why to believe, it seems that they don't believe in the concept of death. They just go from one body or vehicle to another to continue fulfilling their mission. But the question is, do they remember their mission or is it like us that we have to start all over again without remembering? No, they seem to be to retain all of their faculties and memory and everything else when they translate. And, and I guess, yeah. And what is the social structure of the Nordics? Um, the Nordics again have a a hive mind, but not as strong or um, invasive of independent thought as the Greys. More consensus. A little, yeah, more of a consensus, yeah. So what is your assessment of the Nordics? I like the Nordics. <laughs> I know that sounds odd, but I enjoy talking to them. There are some races that it was very, very difficult to talk to, such as the reptilians. But the Nordics I enjoy talking to. And um, of all of the, maybe that's why they were chosen to be hybridized with humans, is that I felt... Um, um, Not a kinship, that's the wrong word, but I felt an affinity with them. Well, physically, they seem to be, I mean, they could be walking and sometimes they're very tall, but they can be walking among us and, you know, nobody would even question it. I think that is the case. I think that we encounter other races, um, you know, during the day or even during the night uh, here on earth and we're not even aware because they're so like. Um, people like like humans, for example, um, can I give you an example? Uh, an example here in back in the uh, to year 2000, a group of us were at the stratosphere, and I'm going to write this up probably in the sequel, Faces of the Cosmos, um, and uh, a group of us came up on the the shops on the second level there, and um, 
to this young woman standing there over six foot tall, um, just staring out at a, a page boy, blonde page boy, very thin, very tall. She might have been a tall white. I interpreted her as a, um, a Nordic. And all the hair on my arms, my back went up. And I turned to the group I was with and said, you see the woman behind me, what do you think? And the older man who was with us said, go and talk to her. And I said, no, <laughs> um, I think I probably would now, knowing what I know and talking to the race But at that time, I didn't want to talk to her and um, probably embarrass myself. Um, so we went down the escalator. The older man stayed at the top of the escalator. He wanted to perhaps um, talk with her or you know, find out more about her. He says that a man came along and the three of them went down the escalator together. And we all, the group of us that were stood at the bottom of the escalator saw different things. Uh, I saw the older man behind the woman looking, you know, with his head down, talking to her. He claims he never talked to her on the escalator. He just listened to her talking to the, the guy she was with. One of the, the lady in our group said that she recognized the guy, but she couldn't place him. I never saw the guy. Uh, I saw the woman get off the escalator alone and walk, toward, walk through the casino. Everybody else saw her get off with the man escorting her by the elbow. So to me, he was invisible. Very and, interesting. And that's, that's one quality that the Nordics have, that they can they materialize or become invisible right. to our eyes. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have to take our one and only intermission. We're discussing voices of the cosmos. And folks, we just scratched the surface. We just discussed the tall grays and the Nordics. Let me just tell you. What we have when we come back, we're going to be talking about the small grays, which are different than the tall grays, the hooded reptilian, the indigo hybrid, the orbs, the oranges, the angels, the light beings, dark ones, anaka, Nordic orbs, Lyrians, Duvel or Duvel, Syrians, Aldebarans, the Rall and the Anunnaki. So, so much more when we come back. Angela, how can people buy the book? Uh, they can go on Amazon um, or they can go to my website at uh, mindwiseconsulting.com or on Amazon. They just look for voices from the cosmos. A lot more discussions, talks, dialogue with extraterrestrials when we come back. This is Mel Fabregas. I'm here with my special guest, Dr. Angela Thompson-Smith. And by the way, just want to say a speedy recovery to our good friend, Dr. Steve C.B. Scott-Jones. Sorry that he wasn't able to make it, but I'm sure he's going to be listening to this interview when it airs. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy.
this is Scott Jones, and thank you for listening to Veritas. It is important. Mm-hmm.